Welcome to Foul Players Radio, your podcast for arts, entertainment, and pop culture. My name is Michael Spedden, your host. Every episode features interesting people with fun, fascinating stories about their journeys in the performing arts. Authors, actors, dancers, writers, musicians, athletes, comics, you name it. Folks who are center stage, backstage, on camera, or behind the scenes. Sit back and listen. Let's have some fun. Foul Players Radio is a production of the Foul Players Group and a proud member of the SJ Network. And welcome back to the Rising from the Ashes edition of Foul Players Radio. My name is Michael Spedden. Bruce Starr joins us today. He was a personal appearance agent for many comedians that performed at both the Comedy Store and the Improv in Los Angeles during the 1980s. Some of the talent that he had as clients included Murray Langston, the unknown comic, Paul Reiser, Bobby Slayton, Rick Overton, Howie Mandel, and many, many more. He has wonderful stories of his career in the 1980s, which are very interesting and fun to listen to, and he also has his own podcast, which, like Foul Players Radio, seeks to preserve the stories of those who made entertainment history for future generations to enjoy. If you like what you hear on Foul Players Radio, you'll enjoy Bruce's podcast, too. His podcast can be found at www.80sgoldenageofcomedy.com, and you can also find these interviews on YouTube. Subscribe for free at www.foulplayersradio.com or listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Podcast Addict, Podchaser, Pocket Cast, Deezer, Listen Notes, Player FM, Podcast Index, Overcast, Castro, Castbox, or Podfriend. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The Foul Players of Perryville are now booking murder mystery shows for the late summer and fall of 2021. Indoor or outdoor venues, trains, boats, office parties, fundraisers, or just for the heck of it. 443-600-0446 or foulplayersperryville at yahoo.com. For more information on the Foul Players of Perryville, you can find us at www.foulplayersofperryville.com. We'll be back with Bruce Starr after the stupid joke of the week and these words. And now a brand new feature on Foul Players Radio, the Dumb Joke of the Week. A young lady graduated from college, and like many young people, she was unsure of what she wanted to do with herself. She moved back home with her parents and started looking for jobs, but nothing seemed to catch her interest. One day, after she and her parents went to church, they walked down to the fellowship hall for some refreshments. On the bulletin board was a notice about a mission trip the church was sponsoring to Guam, She and her parents agreed that this could be just what she needs to help find herself and decide on some direction in her life. So, when she arrived in Guam, and she arrived at the village she was to assist, she was told by the group leader that the folks on the island were very fond of Asian food. The young lady found herself learning to prepare it for the villagers, and she got so good she ended up giving them cooking lessons. She learned how to chop up meat and vegetables, add rice and seasonings, and prepare wonderful meals using a wok. The villagers were very appreciative of this. The young lady noticed that many people were barefoot. With the beaches being very rocky, and many of the roads being made of asphalt and tar, she thought it must be very uncomfortable for the people to walk around. She remembered that one of her good friends in college's family was in the shoe business. She contacted them from the island, and as it turned out, they had hundreds of pairs of shoes in their warehouse that were never sold, but they held on to for some reason. Some of the shoes were no longer stylish, but they were in good condition, and that's all that mattered. 
The family packaged all the shoes and sent them to Guam, and when the young lady presented the village with all of these shoes, they were also very appreciative. When the time came for the mission trip to be over, the young lady said her goodbyes to the villagers and headed home. When her parents met her at the airport, they noticed quite a difference in their daughter. She was smiling from ear to ear and couldn't wait to tell her parents about the trip. She told her parents the trip was very satisfying and fulfilling, and she learned a lot and was glad she went. Her parents asked her, well, tell us, what kinds of things did you learn? The young lady had a big smile on her face. She looked at her parents and said, Mom and Dad, I learned how to walk and shoe Guam at the same time. Oh, thank you very much. You all are too kind. You all are too kind. We'll be back with Bruce Starr right after these words. Howdy. It's Matt Gwynn here. Popping in to let you know about the adventures of the albino rhino. It's a show. Uh, Frank the Giraffe here. My host James Godwin, and myself put on for you guys twice a week. Uh, every Wednesday, we talk to a comedian. And every Friday, we call it Freaky Friday. The show itself is not safe for work, and that freak is definitely a different word. I just don't know what podcast you're going to be listening to this promo on, and I don't want to, uh, you know, start screaming explicatives while you're sitting in your office. If you're lucky enough to have been able to go back to the work that you did before inside of an office or whatever, you know, but we go on a, an adventure twice a week, and it's a good time because we get to sit down and talk to some really cool people. Uh, and I enjoy it because, you know, I'm just curious little albino who uh, likes to get to know folks. You know, you can find us a couple ways, actually multiple ways. Really, man, there's a lot of different ways to find us. You can find us through our central hub, which is www.albinorhino.me. It's the website find me on. And then, you know, the podcast, you can find the videos on YouTube. Search for Adventures of the Albino Rhino. Also linkable from our website. And you can also find us through Anchor, Breaker, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Radio Public, and Spotify. That's right. We're on the same place Joe Rogan is. Granted, we're not we're not the Joe Rogan experience, but you know what I mean? We're there. We're there. So give us a listen. Promise you won't be promise you won't be dissatisfied. And enjoy your day. Mike here for Misery Point Radio, and you're listening to the Coast to Coast Power Hour on the SJ Network. Now, I know what you're thinking. Mike, what the F is a Coast to Coast Power Hour? Well, my uneducated and uninformed friend, the Coast to Coast Power Hour is a Borg-like collective of epic podcasters from Epic Podcasts that have all come together to discuss the important things in life. Pop culture, current events, random awesomeness, stuff like that. Trust me, you need this in your life. For more information on this show and all the shows on the Coast to Coast Power Hour, as well as on the SJ Network, 
reach out to publicist Steve Joyner at www.s-j-network.com or stevesjnetwork at gmail.com. No need to thank me. I'm just out here, you know, changing lives. What's Your Effin' Binge is a podcast brought to you by Chris, Anchor, and Spotify. And what we talk to our guests about is what they're currently binge-watching on TV. And uh, what we do is we like to uh, take a different approach. I don't want to know what the name of the show is that they're going to talk about before they come on. I have to actually guess it. So I ask them who, what, when, where, why, and uh, try to figure out what it is that they're watching. A lot of times I'm able to guess it. And sometimes I'm not, and that's fine. That adds to the comedy of the show. We like to bring our guest on, whether they're a model or an actress or a producer or a musician, and just let them have a platform to be able to tell everybody what they have coming up next and also entertain everybody with what's worth watching. So I hope everybody tunes in for the next episode of What's Your Effin' Binge. Thanks. It's Chris. So, Bruce Starr, welcome to Foul Players Radio. It's great to have you. Well, I've been looking forward to the Foul Players for quite a while now, and I'm really ready for the Foul Players tonight. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. You have very poor taste, I might add, but I'm glad to have you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to have you regardless. You know, I uh, was, I've been listening to your show for quite a bit now, and I really enjoy it. And a lot of what you're trying to capture, I guess, you know, from – where you were working, you know, where you spent a good part of your entertainment career out on the West Coast, capturing that history is something that I was really trying to do here on the East Coast in the Mid-Atlantic region where I performed years ago, and I still do perform. And I've really enjoyed just hearing the stories of the folks that you worked with, or even the ones that you didn't work with, but were around on that scene. Because, I mean, you know, the Los Angeles area comedy scene in the 80s was just such a magical time for comedy, such a wonderful time. So many great specials and great talent and people that ended up going into TV and movies from doing stand-up and everything, just such greatness came out of that era. And that really must have been something to be part of it, huh? Oh, it was really, uh, I don't know if I can call it luck. I'm not sure what to call it, but I ended up being on the doorstep of the improv on Melrose in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And uh, my friend just dropped me off there. I moved from Boston to Los Angeles and he just picked me up and put me on the doorstep of the improv because he knew I wanted to be in the business. And he mm -hmm. said, here, go, go in there. This is where you'll be every night. Mm -hmm. This is where you're going to live. I said, oh, 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 okay. And he said, go talk to this comic and that comic. We're friends and they'll treat you well. And from there, I just started going literally every night because I wanted to. And it was incredible for me to be sitting either next to or with all the comedians that were performing at the club. It could have been Jerry Seinfeld. It mm -hmm. could have been Paul Reiser. Every comedian, Bobby Slayton, Paula Poundstone. Mm -hmm. They all went through the improv on Melrose, and it was just a real lucky break that a few months after I got there, I walked in one day, and there was a full-blown production going on, 
Evening at the Improv. And on Evening at the Improv, the place just came alive. Mm -hmm. And it was so exciting because the hosts of Evening at the Improv were people like Milton Berle mm -hmm. and uh, Vincent Price and Sergeant Bilko, Phil Silvers, and just amazing, amazing people who hosted the show and introduced the comedians. And then they had on four or five comedians on each show. Mm -hmm. And I was watching the people that I hung out with every night go on stage and just do incredibly well. And they were getting their opportunity to score, their opportunity to take years of trials and tribulations and struggling. And then when Evening at the Improv hit, they had their chance. Mm -hmm. And then something fantastic happened from there. Evening at the Improv started playing on syndicated television yeah. everywhere in the country. Mm -hmm. And then shortly after that, A&E picked it up and it was on cable everywhere. Mm -hmm. And comedy clubs exploded everywhere in every city. And I was at the right time to be someone who can approach them eventually and say, hey, I know your big time agent doesn't want to bother with a two or $3,000 weekend gig. I know you don't want to call. How about if I call? How about if I make those calls? So oh. because they kind of liked me and I wasn't a threat to anybody, I wasn't stepping on anybody's toes, it worked out. I ended up representing about 35 stand-up comedians. Oh, wow. Wow. So that I was going to ask you about that. You had mentioned in your previous conversations that you're, the title that you sort of had back then, and let me make sure I have this correct, it was personal appearance agent. Is that correct? That's it. That's it. Now, some people don't don't know the difference between manager and agent. You're right. So just real quickly, an agent approaches Michael, says, Michael, I got a gig for you. It's 500 bucks. You want it? And you go, yeah, that's a personal appearance agent. Okay. A manager says, hey, Michael, I think your career, I think you have so much talent. I think you have so much potential. I want to help mold you. I want to help you make all the right decisions. I want to help you when an agent comes to you and offers you a job. Is it a good job? Is it for the right money? Is it a good club? Will it help your career? That's a manager. Right, right, right. And I did some of that, mm -hmm. but mostly for the 35 guys. Okay. I was a personal appearance agent. And I wasn't getting stepping on anybody's toes. I mm -hmm. created this incredible place for myself. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like it. It sounds like it. I mean, the television shows that you were talking about, you know, like Evening at the Improv, and there were so many other ones back then. And the folks, like a lot of these names that you told us here, I was in high school in the 80s. You know, I've graduated high school in 86, if that kind of gives you a reference. And I was watching these shows, you know, not only, you know, the evening at the improv, but all the Rodney Dangerfield specials, the HBO stand-up specials. And my, there were just so many great ones back then. I mean, 
we would be in school, we would be in high school, you know, and we would be watching these. And then of course, the next day we'd be at school in the cafeteria, repeating them back to each other and say, exactly. Hey, did you catch that guy last night? Did you catch that guy? Exactly. And there were just so many great ones back then, you know, and it seems like comedy had kind of, you know, evolved to just really just explode. What, what do you kind of credit the, the comedy explosion in the eighties too. What was going on in the eighties that maybe wasn't happening in the sixties or seventies? Maybe could you tell us about that? Or do you? Yeah, you know? I mean, it's it's that perfect storm of mm-hmm. having these guys starting in the middle to late seventies mm-hmm. and working their butts off and honing their skills and getting tons and tons of open mics and gigs anywhere they could go to become a headliner. Mm-hmm. And then when they worked and worked and worked for years and years, the evening at the improv gave them the platform to be seen by everyone. Mm-hmm. And they were ready. They knew what they were doing and they did great. And just having a TV show like Evening at the Improv, like Rodney's shows, mm-hmm. like the, 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 the Showtime shows, giving those people exposure, oh, having yeah. somebody like Howie Mandel be on St. Elsewhere while yes, he was yes. a client of mine, that's an explosion. Pow, right there. Oh, it is. It is. And so really it's the combination where in the 70s the television just wasn't there for, mm-hmm. for comedy. It just right. wasn't there. And the 80s was the thing that really blew it up. And I would say probably too, you know, in the seventies, not that many people had cable. And then all of a sudden in the eighties, all of a sudden, well, you know, the eighties, if you look at the technology, it's all relative to the seventies. You know, in the eighties, you had 36 channels on cable, which is nothing compared to now, but still a lot more outlets for people. I mean, if you think of and one thing that you just kind of brought to mind too, you may have had, in the you know sixties and seventies, you know Johnny Carson, you may have had you know maybe Saturday Night Live, but they really didn't have the shows as much. Or you know, maybe they did have the variety shows like the Flip Wilson Show and things like that to showcase comedians. But there weren't as many. I guess it really did kind of boom in the eighties, like we had mentioned with the Night at the Improv and the uh, Young Comedian Specials and the Rodney Dangerfield and the HBO specials and everything too. Yeah, I mean, you never had three, four, five, six comedians on a broadcast before. That's right, too. That's true, too. And so you go from somebody who worked their whole lives to mm-hmm. get a Carson spot, one Carson spot, mm-hmm. and maybe a Mike Douglas. Right, right, Or right. maybe a Merv Griffin. Mm-hmm. And then again, they hopefully a six months later or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's a one in a million where – now they were getting playtime uh, all over cable television, and sure, sure. there weren't 500 channels. There were a few. So if you offered good television, mm-hmm. good comedy, people watched. Oh yeah, oh yeah, and it was it really was good comedy back in those days too. Um, so you had worked. You, you had mentioned that you had you know, worked at the Improv and done some work with the Comedy Store. So you probably got to know. Bud Freeman and I guess the Shore family too, you know, Mitzi and Paulie Shore. And yeah, I, I knew Bud very well. Mm-hmm. And, and Mark Lenau, who was uh, the, his partner, 
As a matter of fact, I've, I interviewed Mark on my 80s Golden Age of Comedy show a year or mm-hmm. so ago. And, uh, but unfortunately, had a health issue or else I would have been all over him to be on the show. Mm-hmm. But I did have his daughter, Zoe. Oh, okay, and sure, uh, sure. she was a terrific guest. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the 80s Golden Age of Comedy.com, 80S Golden Age of Comedy.com, right now, there's over 36 interviews with some of the great comedians of the 80s. And now, not mm-hmm. only the great comedians, but because of Stephen Joyner, who we both know, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's getting me some incredible celebrities who were part of comedy. Like yes, Peter yeah. Riegert. Peter Riegert mm-hmm. was in Animal House. Oh, yeah. I just did a show with him. So And, and also he got me Stanley Livingston. Stanley mm-hmm. Livingston was Chip on My Three Sons. Sure, I mean, sure. These are the people that started sitcoms mm-hmm. before they were sitcoms. Right, right. And uh, 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 Ted Lange, who was mm-hmm. uh, Isaac on uh, The Love Boat, Mm-hmm. Fantastic interviews, learning all about show business. If anybody has the slightest bit of interest in getting into show business and you're young and you don't want to make awful, terrible mistakes that a lot of people did that cut their careers off like instantly, go see the 80s golden age of comedy.com website mm-hmm. and pick any of the uh, interviews, which, by the way, they're free now. Mm-hmm. I don't know how much longer they're going to be free because we're going to do something with them and packages and memberships. But right now they're free. So mm-hmm. people can go right now and watch interviews with uh, Murray Langston, the unknown comic, and Tom <laughs> Dreesen and Bobby Slayton and just incredible people. They're fantastic interviews. I saw the Murray Langston interview, and that guy is a riot. My God, I, I don't think you guys got any any conversation in for like the first 20 minutes of that one. Cause both of you were laughing so hard. It took me a week to recover from yeah, the, I know. I mean, my breath. <laughs> he is hysterical and yeah, he's just the same as he was 40 years ago. Yeah. He's in his seventies. Yeah. He's, he's basically, he told me he's retired. I said, Murray, can I get you? Can mm-hmm. I get you out there? He said, nah, I want to stay home. I'm, I'm retired. I might be able to get him out there on the road again. Yeah, yeah, it would be good. But, you know, I, I that's the thing, too, we've got to remember nowadays when folks are getting a little bit older, you know, the schedule that they kept when they were in their 20s and 30s. And I see this, too, as a musician, you know, playing music and things like that. I know guys that I've played with. I even see it myself. You know, whenever I get a music gig, you know, before in the 80s and 90s, I was going on at 11 o'clock at night. The ones I play now, I want to be home in bed by 11 o'clock at night. And you'll take a nap at four or five, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. That's right. That's right. Um, <laughs> but another one that another uh, coast, uh, another guest that we both had in common was Steve Bluestein. Oh, yeah. And uh, not only uh, he was really great. He had some excellent stories about, you know, stamp because he was part of that scene that you were involved with and also with the Ace Trucking Company. And he's written some really good books, too. Um, I've read two of them so far. And uh, he was a great host, you know, talking about, you know, being, you, you knew he was an original member of the Groundlings. I'm sure you discussed that on the show. You know, I'm sure, I don't know if I, rem- I don't think so. I think just we, with him, I think we just stuck with the 80s. And yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. remember him talking about the Groundlings, although I'm surprised I don't have that memory. We'll have him back. 
Yeah. And, you know, Have since it. he did the show, he's gotten his own talk show. Yes, I saw it, too. He's doing good. He's doing good with that. Um, so I'm not going to take full credit for getting him that show. I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, you know, he's very knowledgeable, and he knows a lot of people. And you know he, he's a good host. He's a good host. I listened to a couple of episodes, and he, he does a great job. You know, and- when I have these uh, folks on the show, one of the things that's on my mind mm-hmm. is to record history. Mm-hmm. I want to record their lives. I want to find out things that I never knew about them when I represented them. Right. So I'll ask right. them about their childhood. And mm-hmm. How did their parents influence them? How did they get to be a comedian? How did someone... I wanted to be a shortstop on the Yankees. How does someone <laughs> decide they're going to be a stand-up comedian? I, you know, I never, I never mm-hmm. understood that. So hearing from them, right, their, right. their intimate stories. You know, I never had a show that was less than an hour because everybody loved sharing about themselves. Mm-hmm. And my thoughts are, you know, I'm hearing about comedians are getting ill or a lot of incredible Gary Shandling, mm-hmm. a lot of incredible comedians are not with us anymore. I know. And I and know. I want to make sure that I get as many of these folks on the show because once they're gone and we don't want to see that, their stories, their history mm-hmm. is gone forever. Those intimate stories about who they did with what and when yeah. and how, you know, they're gone and they're lost. I Did you have on Stephen Stolier yet? Yes, I have. Yes, I have. Now, and- he recorded... He recorded Groucho Marx, worked for him for three years, mm-hmm. and shared stories about, you know, he, he'd open up the door at Groucho's and Mae West would walk in. Yes, yes, I know. Oh, uh, man. George Burns would walk in. Yep. I mean, I'd, be, I'd give anything to be a fly on the wall in that room, let alone sitting down and eating lunch with them. Absolutely. And- Absolutely. Right, because the thing is, it's like he would be eating lunch, and Groucho and George Burns would be talking about like theaters they performed in, like nineteen twelve. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's while they were out on that vaudeville tour. Yeah, exactly. And where where are you going to hear stories about that ever again? I know, I know. And you know, the, these things really need to be preserved. I mean, because this is part of our entertainment heritage. Um, I, you and I, another common guest that we both had was a fellow by the name of Mark Scheffler. He, and, and one thing I wanted to have him back on to pick his brain about was he performed in the cat skills and the cat skills are a very big part of our entertainment heritage too. I mean, so many great people and so many, there were just so many great rooms with all this history in them. They're all gone now, but yeah, there are see, people- that, that's the thing. I decided that I would try to get some of those guys on mm-hmm. and they're either gone or they're ill. And right. I think there's like a small handful yeah. of uh, guys left. Right. There's maybe a handful of them that are still out there and everything. And, and the other thing too, is that when you remember, you know, if, if they're older and I'm not saying this is a derogatory comment, you know, sometimes when you get some folks that are older, you know, they could be getting up there. They may not be, you know, they may have, you know, dementia, they may have, you know, may not have their memory. They may not be as sharp as they once were. So, you know, getting their stories may be a bit of a challenge. But that's it's it's worth the try. You know, at least asking. Yes, I'm about still it. I'm still going to try. Sure. There's a sure. fellow named Dick Dick Capri mm-hmm. that uh, 
worked all over the Catskills. That's still mm -hmm. uh, alive. And he's down here in Florida. So I'm trying. I have connections through some of the comedians that I know who knows him. Right. And right. I'm going to do my best to get him on the show. Yeah, there's there's so much um, great history. Uh, one of the things that kind of differs uh, between our shows is, you know, we're both kind of historical, you know, historically oriented. Your folks were national and they were celebrities. A lot of my guests, you know, I do have a lot of those folks as well. But my original intent was to focus on the Mid-Atlantic, you know, Baltimore, D.C., Northern Virginia, Southern Pennsylvania, and even into West Virginia was not an entertainment capital like New York or LA or something like that. But you know, we had our acts and our personalities and people in this area here, you know, that when you're within this area, they were just like the Rolling Stones. Absolutely. Yeah. They were just like the Rolling Stones or Larry King or, you know, Howard Stern or, but they were, you know, just within this area here. And bringing back those stories just for the folks that lived in this area has been something that's great too, because again, there, there are you know a lot of great stories, a lot of great experiences because these were the folks that were opening the people that were like the ones you represented, you know, they right. were out there were opening, you know, whenever these rock concerts would come through, you know, the bands that were in this area, you know, like kicks, crack the sky face dancer, uh, they were opening for these bigger acts. And so they had their taste of that and, you know, they did have record contracts and things like that, but they didn't reach, you know, again, like what Mick Jagger did, but still, you know, had a lot of successes and a lot of great stories too. You know, um, one thing I wanted to ask you a bit about too, and, and, uh, and I've, I absorb, you know, showbiz history, uh, podcasts like crazy. And one thing that I've heard from a lot of the folks that, you know, that you have been mentioning uh, when I've listened to their stories, you know, both on your show and on others, it seemed like there was sort of a real camaraderie amongst them. Of course, there was, you know, a level of competition as well, but it seemed like I would hear, you know, a fellow like Larry Miller or uh, and a number of other ones, they would be at the improv performing as they always were. But if somebody were on Jay Leno or Johnny Carson, you know, everybody was in the comedian's area around the TV, watching them and supporting them while their appearance was going on. Uh, did you, I'm sure you noticed a lot of that, didn't you? You know what, if there's another reason to call it the golden age, the eighties golden age of comedy mm -hmm. was for that right there. The camaraderie, right. they, 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 they grew up together. They stood on those lines waiting for their numbers at the improv for hours. Mm -hmm. They got to know each other on those lines. Right. They got to know each other traveling around, mm -hmm. uh, working the, the, the clubs in Chicago and St. Louis and Pittsburgh and your area. And they, they lived together. Uh, they really helped each other. Sure. Sure. Uh, I, uh, story after story. Jay Leno was as helpful as you, you just couldn't imagine how helpful Jay Leno and even people like David Letterman were mm -hmm. very, very helpful. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They all helped when the guys would come out from New York or Boston that they knew they, the first thing that they would do, even though if the, the new guy got to perform at the improv, 
and the comedy store, maybe instead of them sometime, mm-hmm. they still introduced that new guy to Mitzi Shore yep. or Bud yep. Friedman and mm-hmm. say, hey, Bud, this is my friend. I know he's terrific. Take a look at him. See what you think. And then, you know, my job is done. Mm-hmm. People were there for each other. They would write with each other. They'd help each other with their acts. Mm-hmm. So another reason why it was the 80s golden age of comedy was for the love, man. The mm-hmm. love, you right. know. Right, right. Uh, they really did, for the most part, really like each other and did not look at each other as the competition or the enemy at mm-hmm. all. And that was just such a, uh, an incredible opportunity to absorb uh, such talented people mm-hmm. out there helping and supporting each other. Yeah. It was the same environment here in the Mid-Atlantic when I was playing. Uh, my heyday of playing music was between like 87 and 94. And in those days, like you had mentioned, you know, with, with people being supportive of each other, um, we would network together. It was kind of like a Friars Club atmosphere. We all knew each other. And whenever a Maryland band got the opportunity to go showcase in New York, playing at places like CBGB's or something like that, it was almost like, you know, the gig that they had before that, people would get together and they would almost have like a bon voyage party. If you remember bon voyage parties from years ago, when people would go on vacation, very nice. We would have those here for people, uh, you know, best of luck, you know, go kick ass in New York and take names and, you know, have a great show up there and everything. And then also too, a lot of times there were car caravans that would go to New York or sometimes bands would organize bus trips I mean, a lot of the folks, you know, in the age group and everything didn't have any money. So the bus trips didn't always go so well. One thing that we used to do a couple of times, and I can't believe I did it, was we would rent a rider truck, one of those box rider trucks that had like a little doorway between the driver's compartment and the box. And we would have, you know, 15 or 20 people in the back of the rider truck with couches (laughs) and I'm thinking nowadays we would have been pulled over for suspicion of human trafficking or we would have had 20 dead people in the back of that thing from carbon monoxide poisoning but but instead it was the good old days it was the good old days it was the good old days that's how we paid our dues and we would all do these things together and it sounds like you know just from the stories i've heard there was a lot of that and even from what i've seen nowadays you know you're interviewing people you know people that were in that era back then that are still active now are still performing together and they're still in touch, you know? Yeah. The, the amazing thing is that, you know, I left the business a long time ago. I left the business completely, mm-hmm. but I loved the business. I, nothing else got mm-hmm. me going. Nothing else excited me. No job, no career. I mm-hmm. mean, I did radio and television for years and years and years. And that was great. Mm-hmm. But this, this thing being around the comedians and working with them, that's what's been so amazing is that I, it was 30 years, 35 years, and I started getting the idea of why don't I, you know, some of these guys are getting, they're writing books. Maybe mm-hmm. they'll, you know, even though I'm not in the middle of it anymore, mm-hmm. maybe they'll let me interview them because sure. they're writing a book. And maybe I'll help them sell two or three books. Right, 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 right. So they gave me the chance to interview them. Mm-hmm. 
I know Lois Bromfield gave me an opportunity when uh, it's not that nobody else would, but she said yes. Joey Kamen also had a book, a guy that uh, worked a comedy store for years and years and years, was a big mm-hmm. voiceover guy. He wrote a book. He gave me the chance. And, you know, once I had two, three, four, five people that I've worked with already, that gave me the confidence to start approaching more people because mm-hmm. I said, you know, I've done this show and that show. So nobody wants to be the first one to do the show. But here it is 35 years later, mm-hmm. and I'm interviewing these guys that I work with right. in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And I'm back you know, it's like being back at a place that I love being at mm-hmm. and reacquainting myself. And I believe that uh, I'm going to be working even closer to these people in the coming months, hopefully with uh, you, uh, getting mm-hmm. them work, getting them, uh, getting them out there, getting them uh, recovering from this mess that we've been in. Yeah, And yeah. Uh, it's a very exciting time because I have a very – different vision than a lot of other people do. Mm-hmm. I see this thing opening up and opening up wide. People oh, yeah. don't see that yet, but I see it. I'm not the only one. Mm-hmm. Half the country's opened up, and we know that there's some things that are going to happen in the coming weeks. I'm not even mm-hmm. going to say months. In the coming weeks that everything is going to open up because certain mm-hmm. things are going to be proven weren't maybe not so true. Maybe it really didn't happen like that. And there's going to be a lot of activity. People are going to want to laugh. People mm-hmm. are going to want entertainment and going to be in the forefront of it. I agree with you wholeheartedly, Bruce, because I was just thinking, and I've been speaking a lot with you know, other entertainers and artists, you know, from my area and, you know, throughout the country that, I, you know, the guests that I've had on the show that, you know, I've met through working with Steve and everybody. And I really agree that. I have a feeling once, and it's going to depend on state by state, but I really think that once it's finally behind us, the floodgates are going to open and we may have another Renaissance. Absolutely. I think, um, you know, you cannot, you cannot hold creative people up for that amount of time, because the thing is, it's like, even though many people are not out performing, they're writing, they're imagining, absolutely posing. Absolutely. They're writing music, they're writing comedy, they're writing shows, they are recording things. And I have a feeling that it's going to be another, maybe another magical era, maybe another magical era. You know? There's no uh, doubt about it, because you yeah. just said it. They're home, mm-hmm. and you know because they can't be out there doing the same act, Yep. and it's the same mm-hmm. with me. Right. I left my job behind. Mm-hmm. And what did I start doing? I started doing these interviews. Mm-hmm. Not that someone was paying me to do it. I was doing it on spec. I was doing it because I knew there was something here. I didn't know it at first. But mm-hmm. as I started doing more and more of these shows, I knew I was on to something. Mm-hmm. I hope that these shows that I'm doing on the 80s golden age of comedy, 80s golden age of comedy.com, mm-hmm. go there and watch these shows. I believe they're going to end up somewhere like Netflix mm-hmm. or Prime or yeah, something yeah. just because they're 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 exposing uh, talent and mm-hmm. the, the intimacy and the inner lives of comedians that has never been done before not like this. 
No. And the thing is, is again, I, I really enjoy your show a lot. And I've, you know, I think I've shown you that, you know, just from, uh, you know, the, you know, the commentary and, you know, speaking to you and things, um, these shows, like I said, really need to be archived somewhere. I think you know, there's a lot of people that are doing this sort of thing too, but again, you know, this is a big part of our history. And I think, you know, it, it's not only good for folks that remember, I think it would be good for people that are coming up as well. Exactly. It's going to be a tool to teach mm -hmm. them. Yes. Because one of the things that the comedians say is mm -hmm. the kids these days that are coming out, they don't have the structure. Right, right. They don't have the camaraderie where the everybody around them was saying, no, 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 do this or do that. No, no, make sure you go out to every open mic. Don't worry. Go do this. Do it. Go to the right instead of to the left. They're saying that the kids these days, a handful are incredibly talented, the Chris Rocks, off mm -hmm. the charts. But a lot of these are, a lot of the kids just don't have the structure mm -hmm. to have long-term careers. And th these guys, before the 80s, they were going at it in 75 and 76 mm -hmm. and 77 and 78. They were going at it for years where, you know, I'm hearing that if the guys don't make it in a year or two, they can't last, they, they stop. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be the difference. Yeah, that's an issue of you know being hungry enough or not and wanting something bad enough. It's I, I agree with you. I agree with you. And it, yeah, I seem it, it seems like the mentality with a lot of people nowadays is instant gratification <laughs> as compared to paying your dues and rolling with the punches and getting back up after you get knocked down again. Yeah. And I agree with you on that. I definitely agree with you. You, you know what else, Michael? Uh -huh. uh, life was easier back then. Mm -hmm. You didn't need a million bucks back then to live well. No. The, the bills weren't that high. Right. The rent wasn't that high. Mm -hmm. Electricity wasn't that high. And you, you didn't need to score mm -hmm. to be doing what you want to do in your career. Right now, right. everything is the bills and the, everything is so high, the, the expenses that most of these guys can't afford to stick with it. But it was easier mm -hmm. in the 70s and the 80s. There was more disposable income. Mm -hmm. Expenses were lower. The rents were much lower. And it was easier to do it then than it is now. I agree. And. The stories that the thing that I kind of have to compare it with too is, you know, uh, bands. I know a lot of folks, like I had mentioned, that were playing actively in the 70s and 80s around here. And they would make, you know, they, they would play a gig and they would get, you know, everybody in the band got $100 and that was enough to live off of for that week. <laughs> now, the problem is too, is that when bands are going out and playing nowadays, you know, everybody still gets a hundred dollars and it's 40 years later. Yeah. And that hundred dollars doesn't go quite as much, you know, uh, there as you it go. did there you years go. ago, because well, the thing is too, it's like, I'm not exactly sure if there's a difference in overhead or whatever, when it comes to the bars and stuff like that, but they're paying exactly what they paid 40 years ago. And not only did they, were they able to live like you know, a couple of friends of mine, they had a six piece band. They would all get a hundred bucks. Not only that, but they would also, they had like um, a band house and they also had a medical and dental plan that they were able to put together wow. for themselves. Wow. 
And, you know, one of them had his kids getting medical and dental insurance through the band, you know, I mean, you know, wow. So, you know what I used to hear, Michael, mm -hmm. back in the 70s and the, even before the 80s, some of these comedians would work at seven or eight clubs in a night. Yes, yes, yes. On the weekends. And they'd mm -hmm. make 25 here, 50 there. But mm -hmm. if you work seven or eight clubs a night. Yeah. At 50, you're doing okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. You're so right. they worked their butts off. And they all helped each other, turned each other on to the different clubs. Mm -hmm. So you could make it back then. Mm -hmm. So it was easier to hang in there and and hone your skills and give the world a chance to find you so right. you can have some fame and acceptance mm -hmm. by the public. Yep. You know, something else I wanted to mention too that I've heard from a lot of the uh, you know the guests that I've had on here and Perhaps you could relate this to the comedy scene. Years ago, in in my the times that I was playing, we didn't have you know the Facebook, we didn't have the computer to promote ourselves. You know, we bought ads and local music magazines, but then we went out. You know, our biggest promotional tool was shoe leather back then. You know, we were out at the clubs, giving out flyers and talking to people and meeting people and you know sitting down with a couple of people and having a beer and letting them know what your band is about. And they were open to it. They took the flyer and I would have to say probably 30 to 40% you'd see again, they were open to that kind of thing and open to people. You know, I played in my heyday and the bigger, the biggest bands I was in was between 87 and 94. And then I took some time away from playing to get a, degree and a career and things like that, because, you know, the biggest, the best showbiz advice I ever got was don't quit your day job. Yeah. I, had, I had to get one. So, and then I came back to playing, I'd say probably about 10 years later. And I went out to promote some shows that we'd booked and I'm out handing out flyers to people. And I go over to them instead of being friendly. They're like, what's this? What's this yeah. thing you're handing me? Yeah. Uh, and I'm like, well, it's a flyer. I'm, I'm yeah. playing, you know, and they're like, well, okay. What do you want me to do with this? And I said, well, yeah. read it and keep it and maybe we'll see you. And you know, it turns out that playing live music, not only do you have, I guess people are less interested in the actual band. People are on their phones and people make the show about them. You know, instead of taking pictures of you, they're taking selfies of themselves in front of you with you yeah. in the background. Yeah. Did you, are you seeing any of that? I, you know, I got to tell you, yeah. my exposure mm -hmm. to show business was eighties. Right. Right. I did not venture into the nineties. I did not oh. venture into the two thousands. Mm -hmm. I know less than 95% of what's going on now. Okay. And 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. So, I had my expertise. I had my focus. I got lucky, and it it was all magical. Mm -hmm. Interesting, interesting. Um, how about some of the uh, clientele that you had? You had mentioned Jay Leno and Howie Mandel. Are you at liberty to discuss, or you know, willing to discuss maybe some of your other clients and maybe some stories that you had? With sure. Them? Jay was never a client. But he was the hardest working comedian in the business. Mm -hmm. 
he worked 300 days a year. Wow. And when he was in town, he would he would start up at the uh, comedy store on Sunset, and he'd get on his motorcycle with his black leather jacket, and you would hear, rum, 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 and he'd pull into the improv on Melrose. Right, he'd right. come off his motorcycle and plunk it right in the front and mm-hmm. walk through with his leather jacket and do a set at the improv. <laughs> and then he would go out to Hermosa Beach and do a set out there. So mm-hmm. he was the hardest working guy. Now, my clients, Howie Mandel was by far the biggest client I had. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned before, he was on St. Elsewhere. Oh, yeah. I yeah. Had him. Mm-hmm. And he used to go on Carson like every month because NBC realized Carson was on NBC. NBC realized that every time Howie was on Carson, the ratings for St. Elsewhere went up a point. Mm, yes, so, yes. So they kept having him go on. And you know what happens at the end of a comedian's uh, performance? They say, so Howie, where can people see you? And that's when he had a chance to pitch some of the gigs that I got for him oh. at this place and that place. So we ended up growing. I, I had nothing to do with his tremendous growth or his mm-hmm. fame, but he helped me with mine. And, you know, I had Murray Langston, the unknown comic. Oh, he took me on the road with him one time. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, my God. It was uh, just a, a time to remember. Mm-hmm. I'll never forget it. And, uh, you know, I had some great, great people. Uh, mm-hmm. Paul Reiser, who went on to such fame. Oh, yeah. Fortune. Everybody loves Paul. Uh, Bobby Slayton, the pit bull of comedy. Mm-hmm. He is just incredible. Uh, he did a show. You have to see that one. It was done a few months ago, so it was kind of down below. Mm-hmm. But he tore me to shreds. <laughs> and he, if you know comedians, they would only do that if they knew you and loved you. Mm-hmm. And we had such a good time together. I'll give you, for instance, he'd say uh, somebody would come up to him and they'd say, who's your uh, personal appearance agent? And he'd say, Brucey Starr. And they'd go, oh, I'm so sorry. Can I buy you a cup of coffee? So this, this is what he would say, you know, that people would come up to him. and he, So really funny, funny stuff like that. But how incredible to be included in on their lives mm-hmm. during such a golden time. It was invaluable. Right, right, right. Wow. He was... Um... I've always liked Paul Reiser for years and years and years and years. Um, he was in the diner. Oh yeah. And, uh, when I was you know, being from Baltimore, you know, uh, Barry Levinson is huge. Oh yeah. Everybody's. And he was, a he was also, I believe doing comedy maybe a little before the eighties out there, but he was also, you know, like wrote with Mel Brooks and Carol Burnett and things over the years. But one of his movies called the diner, uh, there was a scene that was filmed right up the street from me um, in a movie theater when I was, I was like in maybe sixth or seventh grade at the time. And I remember uh, we would all stand across the street and watch them, you know, the scene where they would come walking out of the movies and then they were around town and everything. And everybody thought it was the coolest thing in the world. Absolutely. That the movie was being filmed in our neighborhood. Absolutely. 
Yep. And uh, that that was really that was really something else. Um, There's something about show business. Mm -hmm. Everybody want not everybody. People want to be around it. They want to be in it. They want to mm -hmm. observe it. They want to uh, be uh, to see it. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I I left and I always loved the business and having the opportunity to do these '80s golden age of comedy shows mm -hmm. i can't tell you how it's rejuvenated my life mm -hmm. and uh, put me on a, a beautiful natural high well wonderful wonderful it, it's it's great to walk down emory lane and then you know, have the people there to kind of reminisce with you too huh the comedians say that uh, half of them say no bruce this was really great thank you for giving me the opportunity mm -hmm. to reflect on such incredible times they knew it they knew the 80s were a golden age. They knew mm -hmm. it. They appreciate it. And so many of the comedians at the end of the show, whether it was when the, I was still recording or after, would say, mm -hmm. hey, man, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. This yeah. was great. And mm -hmm. you were such a great interviewer and blah, blah, blah. And you were, you were a part of it as anybody. And, you know, that, you know, that warned me that uh, they, would, you know, included me in, in with their lives and their part of their success. Yep. Yep. Well, great. Great. Well, you know, Bruce, I've really enjoyed talking to you. I mean, this has just been, you know, like I said, I've been really, just really enjoying your show and everything and listening to these folks that I used to enjoy growing up and, you know, the people we used to laugh at and, you know, uh, quote their comedy specials in the cafeteria and school. And <laughs> I mean, how even some of the lines that those guys had, from these comedy specials became part of our vocabulary oh, you know, yeah. in those days, some of the punchlines and some of the different things. And oh, yeah. it was just such a wonderful age and everything. And I, I've really enjoyed, like I said, getting to know you and hearing your stories and somebody who was really around in those days. I mean, I'm just fascinated by the history and I thank you for doing such a great job on your show. I've been, I've enjoyed it as a listener. Well, Michael, I think an awful lot of you and I think a lot of your experience and your talent, and uh, we're going to try to find ways to continue yeah. this together. Most definitely, uh, Bruce. I'm confident that uh, we're going to be able to do some damage there in that mid-Atlantic there. Mm -hmm. so, Most definitely. Uh, let's do it. Most definitely. So uh, this is the part of the show where my guests shamelessly plug themselves as shamelessly as they would like to be with all shamelessness encouraged, if that makes sense. So uh, go for it, Brucey. Without shame, 80s, 80s, goldenageofcomedy.com. I have a Facebook site. There's a website. You talk about people going there and just binging. Man, it's one incredible interview after another. Uh, like I said, they're, they're free now. Take advantage of it. There'll be a time when there'll be memberships and all that stuff, but go there now. Mm -hmm. Enjoy it. And Michael, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about all this great stuff to your listeners and viewers. Absolutely. Folks, the uh, Bruce's podcast is just well worth it. I mean, if you enjoy you know, my show, you'll definitely enjoy his. So uh, please you know, give him a listen. Give him a listen. And thank you for listening. This is Foul Players Radio with Bruce Starr, and we'll see you next time.